Welcome. My name is Sophie Murphy, introducing you to this week's edition of The Owl, the Brooklyn Public Philosophers podcast. So, what do we have in store for this episode? We have a string of questions submitted by you, the general public, and what thought-provoking questions they are concerning topics of, well, love. What is love? Now, that is one question that Siri may have trouble answering. However, we can be pretty certain that Irina Pismeni, PhD candidate of the Cooney Grad Center, will do a much better job. I bring you the hour. We gotta make it, baby. Hey, Irina, what's up? Hey, Ian, how's it going? It's going very well. I'm so glad you could do this. So, uh, before we get to the questions that were submitted by our listeners, I thought we would talk a little bit about what got you into thinking philosophically about love. So like, what are the, what are the questions about love that interest you the most philosophically and how did you kind of find your way to them? So the way I came into philosophy of romantic love is by reading a few books on the topic and finding myself essentially disappointed. More precisely, with the kinds of arguments that were given in those books, um, I found very unconvincing. And for me, it was a kind of negative inspiration. And of course, for me, as for many others, the topic of romantic love seems to be interesting. I think people think about romantic love all the time. They experience it. They want to know more about it. People feel romantic love, they seek it. And so romantic love is something that people want to know more about. And so for me, these two reasons, mainly sort of the disappointment with the philosophical literature that I found um, on the topic, as well as the very fact that romantic love is something that people are very interested in, is what brought me to the topic of romantic love. Also in philosophy, I think for the large part, the topic of romantic love itself has been neglected for a long time. And so people, you know, 10, 20 years ago, haven't really been writing about it. But now it certainly has become much more popular. And so this is how I came to philosophy of romantic love. But the kinds of questions that I like to think about with respect to the topic is actually the very question of what it is that is, what is romantic love? And the way I approach this topic is by looking at it through philosophy of mind, thinking of it as a kind of mental phenomenon and trying to classify it. So is it a desire? Is it an emotion? Is it a belief? Is it a behavioral disposition? Is it a sentiment? Is it a syndrome? And so this last category is the one I favor most. I think that romantic love is a syndrome and I embrace all the clinical connotations that come with the term syndrome, the category syndrome. So these are the sorts of things I think about. Yeah, the uh, the Hathaway question, I've heard this called the uh, the, the yeah. what is love question. And it's <laughs> it's interesting too to hear like, that you were sort of motivated to write about this or think about this more by reading stuff that like kind of wasn't working for you or that you didn't, you didn't like very much. I don't know. I remember when I was like 
literally my first philosophy class when I was like 16, I remember reading Plato's Republic and being like, oh, like, I can do better than this. <laughs> like, like, this is no good. Like, I, you know, it's some smart ass 16 year old, like, oh, yeah, sure. Philosophy is great. Like, I'm, I'm smarter than Plato. I can, you know, whatever. So I wonder whether that's a pattern across other philosophers. I'm not the only one. Um, cool. Okay. Well, let's jump, let's jump right in then. Let's, let's look at our first question. So this first question was submitted by somebody calling themselves in all caps sex. So there you go. Oh. Take that, take, take that right. for what nice it's worth. Yeah. Sex. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Nice to meet you. Um, so they write, what's the meaning of love? Is love the same thing as sex? Do I want to have sex with my parent if I love them? I, th- I think that I think the questioner is probably already seeing that the answer is no, love isn't the same thing as sex because you can love your parents without wanting to sleep with them. But anyway, um, yeah, what, what, what do you say in response to that? Right. So this is a very loaded question. There's a lot going on in it. So maybe we can try to unpack it a bit. So maybe we can take the very first bit of it, which is asking what is the meaning of romantic love Mm -hmm. and break that down. One way would be to think of it as the sort of question I'm asking myself in my research, which is what kind of phenomenon is romantic love? But it seems that given the question that the person uh, is presupposing that there is Mm -hmm. a kind of continuity between romantic love and familial love, that is, the love that you experience towards your family members. So I think that there is a continuity, perhaps, or some overlap between these two forms of love in that people who are in romantic relationships, especially if they are in long-term romantic relationships and if they cohabit together mm-hmm. and if they have um, continuously been pursuing some sort of joint projects together, um, they might perceive themselves as a family unit. But I also think that it isn't necessarily the case that there is always going to be this sort of overlap. The way I think about mm-hmm. romantic love as being a kind of obsessive, passionate state and it's the kind of love one sees in Romeo and Juliet or in Abelard and Heloise. I think these stories, these examples, are specifically examples of romantic love. Emphasis on the word romantic. In these sorts of scenarios, you see people experiencing intrusive thoughts, they might crave another person, they might have violent desires towards them. They might have fantasies about them. They might experience very strong sexual attraction, even though that's not necessary. And um, certainly sexual attraction and sexual desire do come apart. People in romantic love might also want to seek intimacy. They might want to spend more time together. They might want to... Um, start dating, living together, so on. I think that these are some of the important differences between romantic love and familial love. Yeah, 
So you've you've characterized it as a syndrome, and I I, <laughs> I like that you you're sort of taking on the yeah the clinical connotations or the therapeutic connotations of that. Yeah. So could you say a little bit more about that? Like what what are syndromes as opposed to say feelings or or emotions? Yeah, sure. The way I approach the topic of romantic love is essentially by comparing and contrasting it with emotions. Mm -hmm. So one good way of beginning to think about romantic love is bring up the notion of feeling. Clearly, romantic love can be felt. Clearly, we experience romantic love. We have all these different feelings when we are in love, but is romantic love simply a feeling? It seems not. And the reason why I think it is not is because a feeling is an occurrence state. It's a state that you actually experience. It's a state that has a certain duration. So, for example, when I am angry, I might feel a kind of burning sensation in my chest. I might clench my fists. I might clench my teeth and I might have a strong desire to retaliate. If I feel afraid, maybe I feel very small, I feel like I want to disappear, I wish for the threat to go away, perhaps I want to hide. And so the characteristic of feelings is that they don't last very long. Mm -hmm. They're kind of sparks. They are episodes. At some point within the few moments, minutes, um, usually our attention switches to something else. Another feeling takes over. We might begin to experience something else. And so romantic love is not like that because clearly romantic love can last for longer than just a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Most people who are in love... Uh, could stay in love, can be in the state of love for months, sometimes even for years, sometimes even for a lifetime, though that's fairly rare. But just because the feeling isn't there 24-7 doesn't mean that one isn't in love. Of course, there is a connection to be drawn between emotions and feelings because emotions manifest themselves through feelings. It's not that emotions are reducible to feelings. They're not just feelings. Rather, they are complex physiological and psychological states. But one aspect of an emotion is this phenomenological component, the feeling component, the fact that there is something it is like to experience anger or to experience fear or to experience sadness. But when it comes to explaining the feelings that these emotions have, the, the phenomenological profile of any given emotion I think is fairly limited when it is compared to romantic love. Mm-hmm. So for example, if I am angry, again, I might feel a kind of burning sensation. I might feel um, particularly uh, awake, uh, determined, my attention might concentrate on my offender and so on. But when it comes to romantic love, it seems that it involves just such a rich variety of feelings 
because for example when I am in love I might be very sad when I part with my beloved I might be very happy when I see them next I feel cozy when I snuggle with them on the couch watching Netflix I might feel that uh, I am elated and excited when I spend good quality time with them I might feel very passionate when I am about to make love to them. So given this variety of feelings, these feelings of love, um, it seems that the psychological profile of love doesn't really fit neatly into the category of emotion. And it seems to me really that there is absolutely no limit to the kinds of emotional states through which romantic love can manifest itself. That is, I want to say that mm -hmm. even hatred could be a manifestation of romantic love. I think that it is intelligible to say that I hate you because I love you. Yeah. It seems like it has to be right to me. I mean, yeah, there's no single, there's no single occurrent feeling that you have throughout the whole time that you're in love with somebody. Um, and it seems like all of these different sort of very distinct feelings are equally manifestations of love or, or products of love in the same sort of way, like you're describing. I think the one, one sort of, wrinkle in this picture and I know you've I know you've thought about this is a wrinkle that you find in philosophical thinking about lots of emotions which is that the way that we in the United States in 2017 uh, think about what love is and distinguish between different types of love and think about what lovers ought to do and how they ought to treat one another um, it's, it's like super culturally contingent. It's very specific. Like not all cultures share these attitudes towards what types of love exist and how they are and ought to be manifested. So different philosophers react to that fact in different ways. Um, you can, you can become like really skeptical and say, oh, well, maybe nobody actually loves anybody else. Maybe this is just some, you know, some irrational indoctrination that we've all received in, you know, living in the United States or wherever. Or you can take the view that that emotions are somehow sort of cultural products and they're sort of made up of culture in some way. So how does that observation about like the contingency, the cultural contingency of the way that we think about and act on love, um, how does how does that uh, fit in with this picture that you're that you're describing? So that's a good question and that's a good question to answer, especially when it comes to explaining emotions. There seems to be two schools about it. One is sort of what you are describing, which is social constructionism. The thought is that emotions are created by society in that the society provides a label for the kind of physiological change and maybe the psychological experience 
that you may have in a given situation. This situation is considered to be a kind of paradigmatic situation to feel that sort of emotion. So for example, suppose that you feel a kind of protuberation in your body when you are insulted and you are to understand that kind of physiological and psychological change in you as anger. So your society tells you, call that anger when you feel what you feel when you are insulted. And it also specifies the kinds of situations in which it is appropriate to feel anger and not appropriate to feel anger. Mm -hmm. So this is the idea of social constructionism of emotions in a nutshell. And I think it's an interesting idea that somehow emotions are social constructions, but I think it sort of takes this thought of emotions being manipulated by social contexts a bit too far. Um, while on the other side of the spectrum is the thought that emotions are adaptations or affect programs, they are programs or responses that have been selected for by evolution in order to help organisms cope with their environment in a successful way. Mm -hmm. Of course, this will not be true of all emotions, this will only be true of some emotions. I think the favorite example of all philosophers and psychologists to illustrate this is the example of fear where clearly feeling fear is advantageous or having the capacity to feel fear is advantageous because fear informs you of danger and it also prepares your body for a response, right? So you experience fear, you are informed that perhaps there's danger in uh, the vicinity and your body is now prepared to deal with it in that it is now prepared to either freeze or flee. So affect programs is the other extreme of the spectrum. Um, but you know, even if we take the story of affect programs seriously, if we think that some emotions are clearly adaptations, it is also obvious that emotions are sensitive to culture. This is why you see the differences between cultures when it comes to say, specifying which emotion is appropriate in a given situation. But I think when it comes to romantic love, you are clearly pointing out something really important. Specifically, there is variation with its frequency of occurrence, um, as well as its role in the society. When you think about romantic love in our society, in Western cultures, it is perceived to be one of the most important emotions uh, or phenomenon, I should say, and it is conceived of as being the main basis for marriage. This seems to be the main reason why people get married, or at least supposed to get married to one another. So we think of it as a basis for a larger project of building your life together, um, having a life partner, having some sort of um, couple, being part of a couple. But when it comes to cultures in which um, arranged marriages are still very much practiced, 
we see that the frequency of romantic love decreases. And I think that's partly because it isn't considered to be the right sort of basis for an important institution like marriage. For on the one hand, romantic love provides this intensely tight grip on the lover where the lover is completely or could be completely insensitive to reason and so might make wrong decisions like marrying somebody who isn't necessarily marriage material um, and at the same time romantic love is notoriously unreliable so as you're pointing out the symptoms of the syndrome of romantic love are going to vary across cultures yeah We've got another question about love, but this is a question that I think touches more on um, moral issues surrounding surrounding love. So let's let's go there for a second. This one this one is from Cav. Hi, Cav. Hello. <laughs> Cav writes. What makes the difference between a lover and a friend? When your best friend, a woman or member of your preferred gender, turns to you and asks why you couldn't support them in a time of need, but you would have supported your girlfriend, how do you respond? So um, how could it be that... I, I take it that the question is, how, how is it that we might have different sorts of moral obligations to... Um, romantic lovers and to and to non-romantic friends so what do you what do you think yeah so so i think that's an interesting question so when you first asked me why or how it is that i got into philosophy of love i said that i was fairly disappointed with the literature on romantic love and actually one of the main disappointments for me was that when I was looking at different accounts of romantic love, I found them to be overly moralized. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is that uh, very often when a philosopher comes up with an account of romantic love, they tend to construct a kind of moral ideal mm -hmm. of romantic love. So this is what a morally good love would be mm -hmm. or something like that. And I think that's problematic, even though, of course, it is interesting in and of itself to look at these different accounts of romantic love from a moral point of view. But I think what, what they sort of miss out on is trying to actually explain what goes on in real life scenarios. And I think that it is important to realize that love is not an intrinsically moral phenomenon. But so here, um, given this question, I am not entirely on board with it. I do think that we help our friends in the time of need. So I simply don't think that it is true that we don't. But anyway, I've tried to come up with possible ways of um, motivating this idea that perhaps here is why we don't um, think that we should help our friends in the time of need or we take care financially of our friends in the time of need but we do our lovers so first maybe the difference between friends and lovers is the amount of autonomy or the level of autonomy that is maintained between friends and between lovers 
So for example, if you are in a romantic relationship, it could be the case that you become so close with your lover that your identities, yourselves kind of merge into one, right? So you become a couple, sort of like two become one, you are now an item and you are recognized as a couple by society as well. And so if this is true, then your beloved's well-being is uh, very tied up with your own. And so when you care for your beloved in the time of need, then it's almost as if you're caring for yourself, right? Because you really don't uh, distinguish anymore between your own interests and your own goals and your own well-being and uh, the interests and goals and the well-being of your beloved. On the other hand, when it comes to friendships, it seems that um, perhaps we maintain a greater level of independence and a greater level of autonomy for ourselves, um, even when we have best friends. But I think you could probably come up with counterexamples here. Maybe this sort of friendship is very, very intimate. Maybe you really are integrated into one another in, in this very significant way. Um, so it's not clear to me that this is this this holds up. But I um, I don't really want to say anything about moral obligations. I don't think that you have moral obligations uh, or moral obligation to take care of your beloved. I think that you have very strong reasons uh, to take care of your beloved, perhaps because, well, you love them. So I think here love serves as a reason for your then taking care of them because they matter to you. But I think by the same token, you could make the very similar argument about friendships, right? So I, I care for my friend and I have therefore a very strong reason to help them. So I think that this may be one way to try to make sense of why it is people think that um, it is appropriate to take care of your lovers, but not the same demands do not exist when it comes to taking care of friends. Um, but I don't really see how that, that might uh, actually be justified. Um, so here's another, here's a second way I think we could try to do that. The second way would be to say that um, in addition to the integration of the two selves into one whole, um, you are so involved with your lover that you have now uh, decided to participate in multiple in multiple shared projects together. So for example, maybe you're already living together and maybe you're planning your future. Maybe you want to, I don't know, get married and have kids in the future. And so because you have uh, a number of shared plans that are forward-looking, uh, you are now helping each other, supporting each other in trying to um, carry out these plans that you have come up with. And, you know, doing doing that requires of you at the moment to take care of your lover. Perhaps at a later time, your lover will take care of you. So maybe the kinds of shared projects that lovers participate in are different from the kinds of shared projects that friends participate in. And maybe that's what might serve as a justification for taking care of your lover but not of your friend. 
Um, again, I don't think this really works because there are so many cases where friends do um, participate in joint projects together, like maybe they want to start a business together, they're going to make cupcakes now, or um, they are starting a startup or something like that. So there again, it seems like you could also um, have a long-term investment in um, a shared project with your friend and so perhaps then in the time of need that your friend experiences you would also help them so there 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 are different there are different accounts of where what philosophers call special obligations come from so a lot of philosophers believe and i think most people believe that um different types of relationships that you can have with a person carry different sorts of special obligations. So people have special obligations to their children that they don't have to their neighbors, and they have obligations to their neighbors that they don't have to strangers, and they have obligations to their lovers that da-da-da-da. I think you've given a good reasons to think that possible justifications for thinking that we have really, really sui generis, really distinctive types of special obligations to romantic lovers won't work. Um, Maybe I'll try one one other one. I'm playing devil's advocate here. I don't actually believe this, but I'll try one other account of of why we might have different special obligations to lovers and to friends. So Simon Keller has this good paper about um, filial obligations, about children's obligations to their to their parents, and um, he goes through a bunch of different sort of possible accounts of why children might have special obligations to their parents and what those special obligations might be and finds them wanting. But the one that he settles on is what he calls the special goods theory. And the idea of the theory is that um, children can provide goods for their parents, at least when they have a basically healthy, basically functional relationship with them that other people just can't provide. He gives the example of of visiting your parents for Christmas. Nobody else can give your parents the good of having their children visit them for Christmas. We don't always have to sort of put down everything that we're otherwise doing in order to provide these special goods to our parents. But, you know, our, our parents have a sort of special claim on us. Uh, to provide these special goods. And maybe we don't always do it, but, you know, they have a special claim on us that other people don't have. Uh, you know, we're t- so we're talking about romantic love. We're not talking about, but sort of all the reasons to believe a special goods theory of special obligations in the filial domain seem to carry over into the romantic domain. So, like, there are special goods that I can provide my romantic partner that other people can't. Sex cuddling, which is just like not, not appropriate in 2017 for most friends, you know, I mean, maybe you can cuddle some of your friends, depends on what sorts of friends you have, I guess. Uh, Maybe some sorts of financial things that I can provide. I don't know. There are different sorts of goods that given where we're situated in 2017 in the United States, we can provide only to our lovers that, that we can't provide to other people. And so maybe our lovers have a sort of special claim on, on us to provide those goods. So like sex might be a good that if I'm in a monogamous relationship, uh, sex might be a good that only I can provide for my romantic partner. That doesn't mean I have to like drop everything I'm doing whenever 
uh, whenever my romantic partner wants to do it and then just like, you know, immediately have sex. That's not, that's not, (laughs) that's, that's not the way morality works. (laughs) But like, you know, she does have a special claim on me in some way. So, so what do you, I don't don't know, what do you make, (laughs) what do you make of that? So I wonder about this question of special goods. So I don't know the literature on this, so I'm not really sure how this is supposed to tie into the question of moral obligations. I suppose that each kind of relationship might provide the participants with some sort of unique values that they would not be able to get anywhere else. But um but it almost sounds to me like it's begging the question because it seems that it's taking the framework of relationships which are thought of as typical. Typically, when you are in this kind of relationship, one person helps the other person in this particular way. And so from there we say, okay, so this is what we do, this is what we ought to do. But I think this needs to be shown that you do have this moral obligation that somehow stems from the kind of relationship that you are participating in. And that might bring us into the next question, because the next question is about the self, romantic love. So if you do decide to help your friend out when they are in a tight spot or when you take care of your lover, among other things, you could take that to be, or it could be a manifestation of how you feel about them. And I think that this is what people actually care about. So when you ask the question, well, why did you take care of me? If I told you, well, you know, I was morally obligated to do so, it was my duty, then it seems like the friend or the lover would be fairly disappointed, right? It seems what instead we care about is exactly how people feel about us and so if it's the feelings of a certain kind that end up motivating certain actions I think that's sort of the ultimate thing that people value in their relationships that because I love you I would do this for you or because you're such a dear friend to me I will do this for you because that's what that's that's how I feel that's who I am Well, so we've started to dip our toe a little bit into the next question, so let's go there. This should be fun. I'm curious to see where you go with this one. Um, This one was asked by somebody calling themselves Body, B-O-D-Y, and Body writes in to ask, who am I? So, go for it. (laughs) So that's very interesting that they chose the um, alias body uh-huh it is it is thanks for the question body uh so obviously this is such a broad question that you could pretty much say anything <laughs> there's just so many things that you could um point you know make out to be relevant but i think the body is a good place to start so it seems to me that um obviously or maybe not obviously to some people but i think to me at least, it's obvious that you need 
a body in order to exist or you need some sort of embodiment or some kind of uh, manifestation uh, instantiation through some substance in order for you to exist um, and so you might begin by saying that since you have a body or if the starting point is a body then once you begin to think about what it is uh, you realize that it's a physical object but it's not simply a physical object. It's a special kind, perhaps, of a physical object in that it certainly isn't uh, exactly similar to physical objects like chairs and tables. Rather, your body, for now, is alive. You are a living organism. Uh, but once you begin to think about your body and its complexity and the way in which all these different processes have to happen in just the right way in order for you to stay alive, in order for you to stay healthy, even in order for you to stay conscious. Um, you might also think about just why it is that your body is this way, right? So why do you walk on two legs? Why is it that you, your head, why is it, why is it that your brain is so large compared to other species? And so here you might think about all the evolutionary history that stands behind the design that your body now has. And it is pretty amazing to think about that this physical object, um, this living organism that is preceded by billions of years, millions of years of existence and of mutations and of evolution, um, that this body here and now today can ask itself a question, who am I? So the fact that you are asking this, uh, this question um, suggests a kind of self-awareness. And this is interesting because I think this is where the mind-body divide often comes from. This idea that when we look at our bodies or when people have looked at their bodies throughout human history and trying to understand who they are, what sort of things they are. Um, it has often been tempting to say that I am not my body in a sense that certainly I am not my hand, I am not my foot. Am I my brain processes? Am I somehow the sum total of all the different processes that go inside my body where the brain functions? Um, of certain kind play a crucial role. But is there anything above or beyond the mental processes that sometimes surface into consciousness and sometimes do not? Is there anything besides thoughts, emotions, perceptions, desires, basically the components of our mental lives that uh, sometimes we can be aware of? Famously, David Hume, a Scottish philosopher of 18th century, said no, there isn't anything above or beyond these mental goings-on. There is no self. So it's just the thoughts, it's just the perceptions, it's just the desires of which uh, one is sometimes aware of. Sometimes there are there is awareness of, I should say. It's also uh, a view that uh, exists in Buddhism, um, but it's an interesting answer to, to the question of what is an I, what is a self. I just recently had a conversation with someone who works on 
the self in Montreal and they have pointed out to me that actually the answer that Hume gives is incredibly unsatisfactory because yeah okay we can agree that there are all these different mental processes that are going on but isn't it something that I am perceiving when I am referring to myself and we say these are my thoughts these are my emotions these are my perceptions and some uh, cases of uh, mental disorders like some uh, cases of schizophrenia sometimes involve a kind of dissociation from the goings-on within one's mental life right so sometimes schizophrenic would say that schizophrenics would say that I'm hearing a voice or there are thoughts in my head but they don't belong to me so it seems that for the most part we think that there is a subject to whom these processes belong or in whom these processes are going on so yeah let's see what else I can think about <laughs> I think that's helpful I think when you get a question which like you say is this sort of broad or ambiguous the fun thing to do or a fun thing to do is to try to is to try to figure out what sorts of meanings it might have and which which of those meanings are the most interesting <laughs> ones i think yep. one sort of question that they might be asking is how do we distinguish the sort of deep or important facts about a person from the superficial or unimportant facts one chunk of the philosophical literature which might be helpful in this department is the literature on like the deep self so you've got you've got a bunch of attitudes you know beliefs and hopes and fears and desires and some of them you know reflect what's ultimately important to you or are somehow at the your core and some don't and the idea is that this is this is what we're getting at when we say things like when I say something stupid and I say, oh, that wasn't really me talking, you know, that was. And different philosophers have, have tried to explain this in different ways. So Harry Frankfurt, you know, distinguishes between desires that you want to have and desires that you don't want to have. So maybe I'm a, I'm a drug addict, but um, I, I don't want to be a drug addict. And so I want another hit, but I don't want to want another hit. So maybe what your deep self desires are those, those desires that you, that you want to have. Peter Railton is another philosopher who's helpful here. Like there are things that you like believe or hope or fear or doubt. He, it gets a little complicated, but roughly to, to ignore some of the, some of the wrinkles here, roughly, if you were a better informed, more rational person, you wouldn't believe or want or hope or fear or doubt those things. So the, the deep self things are the things that the more, the more informed version of yourself would, would, would have too. Um, Chandra Tripada is, is a good philosopher on this topic who distinguishes between like the deep, the deep self stuff is like the stuff that you care about, where caring is something that's like a richer relationship or a richer sort of attitude than just sort of wanting something. Anyway, so... I'm, I'm throwing these all out there for body because I think these are all these these are all sort of different distinctions that might capture that difference between you know what's what's really important to you and what isn't. Do you have a view about all this deep self stuff that philosophers sometimes like to talk about? I think for me in this context, um, a more interesting question is a question about authenticity mm -hmm. because 
I think that when you think about the deep self, you think of the self as being your project. If a self is a kind of project where you create yourself, mm -hmm. you get closer to authenticity by uh, making yourself uh, okay with who you are or just really accepting and endorsing the qualities that you have. Maybe you're happy to endorse 50 or 80%, I don't know, uh, of, of yourself. I don't know where you draw the line, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. Hard to quantify, but yeah. Part, you are happy with the kind of person that you are. But then, of course, there's this other worry, which is the worry of the bias, the fact that we tend to inflate the positive qualities that we have. We tend to over-idealize ourselves, right? So it's really important to not lie to yourself, to not deceive yourself, to not think of yourself that you are just amazing from the beginning. Um, maybe this, there's something similar to the Dunning-Kruger illusion going on when we do this sort of self-assessment. That's why I think, you know, if you take the project of self-creation seriously, and I think here we've totally entered a kind of existentialist domain, um, it's important to perhaps first outline just the kind of person that you are and then ask yourself a question of the sort of person you would like to be, right? Mm -hmm. So. Uh, outline some places where you could see yourself um, uh, be made better. Yeah, and I think you're right to point to the kind of epistemological problems that you have here. I think because we are we, our thinking about ourselves is delusional in all sorts in all sorts of ways, or prone to all sorts of biases. There is some recent work from. Josh Nob and Hagop Sarkissian and and a few other and a few other people and their colleagues uh, finding that like um, people people tend to believe that deep down everybody is better than they are on the surface and the the, the true self the deep self is always morally superior to you know the the superficial self so maybe there's something sort of intrinsically moral about this concept of the deep self uh, maybe maybe not I'm not sure. But at least one worry that you might have as a result of this is like maybe this talk of the deep self sort of encourages us to see people sort of with rose-colored glasses and to just sort of pretend that they're at some level better than they are. And somebody could be a complete dick and then you're just like, well, you know, deep down, I'm sure they're a nice person, you know. I guess one sort of practical upshot that you could take away from that is like, yeah, like you're saying, when you're asking these questions about who you really are, Make sure that you're being sort of morally realistic, that you're not you're not giving into the inclination to think that you're a much better person than you actually are. We talked about the the deep self. We talked about sort of no self or empty self type views. I've talked about a lot of different ways we could might might it begin to interpret this question. I mean, we haven't obviously we haven't answered it because neither of us know who this person is who's, <laughs> who's writing this question. Any any other any other thoughts? Do you think we've left anything out? I think maybe when you ask yourself the question, "Who am I?" Um, you should ask yourself why you are asking this question. This way, you could ground the question. You could define the domain, the purpose for this, and so mm -hmm. it would be clearer what sort of things are relevant 
in answering it. There you go. Well, I hope that was helpful, Body, and I hope that was helpful to Sex and to Cav as well. Thank you so so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm afraid that's all we have time for here at Brooklyn Public Philosophers. Who am I? Well, I knew I was Sophie at the start of the show. Now I feel extra certain that I'm Sophie at the end of the show. So, um, yeah, thanks for reaffirming that, Arena. Um, oh, and remember, love syndrome is no illness. Stay wise, Brooklynites. We're trying to make it, baby.